Hey, Pete, very good to see hey, you. Um, I just said to you, let's just uh, jump right in and no agenda, uh, no introductions. Um, Pete, you've been making music for a long time. Uh, <laughs> I, I start counting officially uh, 1970. I was doing, I was making music before that. Actually, some pretty good stuff before that, but that's when I moved to New York City and, and started getting paid. <laughs> so, so 1970s, like, like you, you, you define as becoming a professional? I think so. Yeah. Is that I was in, uh, in college in Boston uh, in the 60s. And I actually subbed with some orchestras there. I, I was a French horn player back, back then. But, Oh, it was, it was around 1970 that I settled in New York City and went from there. So. And the f French horn was was no more then, or I played it for about ten years. Uh, by the end of the 70s, uh, uh, I was uh, so involved in doing keyboards that I I, I just wasn't bothering anymore. I mean, uh, and there was more work for uh, for keyboard players than for French horn players. <laughs> for sh for sure. So so was was the keyboard your second instrument always? Yeah, I played piano a little bit uh, uh, in college. Jazz piano probably not very well. But, uh, yeah, I've always I've always kind of kind of played it. Mm -hmm. And um, so maybe if if you're okay with that. Um, Tell me a little bit about your childhood. I mean, like, how how did you um, discover music for yourself? Was that something that you know, your parents kind of like helped you with, or was that purely on your own initiative? Our parents were are they both loved music very well. Uh, my dad had been a had played violin sometime when he was when he was a boy. Uh, my mother wanted to play cello but never did. She tried it once. And, uh, she actually took lessons. I think she was around seventy or something. <laughs> Decided she wanted to take cello <laughs> lessons, and she worked really hard at it, and, and it, was, it didn't go very well. So she stopped. But uh, but the, they both liked me. There was music in the house all the time. But, uh, I credited uh, it. Obviously, uh, Tony, uh, my brother, came, came up through the same uh, school system with the same experiences. Uh, uh, we went to. Uh, we lived in Brookline, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston, and the the uh, the music program there was very good. It was well funded. Uh, the teachers were really good. Uh, they were all professional musicians who were also teaching, but they were playing a lot on the side. Uh, the uh, let's see the. Uh, no, it was the head of the music department. It was the band director. Became the head of the music department. Uh, was also the. Uh, uh, the director of music at MIT, the band director was a great trombone player. Was also the uh, the band director at North Northwestern Northeastern University. I'm sorry, in Boston, uh, and they were uh, they were really good at inspiring young players uh, uh, to play, to try things, and to go into music if uh, if they you know if they thought we had a shot at it. Uh, so I was encouraged a lot to, to do that. In fact, the uh, uh, his name was John Corley, who was the, uh, the head of the head of the music department. Uh, the band, the concert band at MIT, was uh, they didn't have a music program there. 
Uh, it was all made up of uh, engineers, future engineers, uh, all IQs way up high. They played instruments uh, you know, in school, in high school, and they just wanted to keep doing it. But they were all uh, very good players. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, but there weren't enough of them to completely fill out a, a concert band. So, uh, so uh, uh, he would he would bring some ringers from the high school and to play with the band, and I, you know, I played fourth horn because the other guys were much better than I was. But uh, it was a great experience uh, playing very difficult music, way beyond what a high school band would have played. Uh, but it, it was it was like that. I was encouraged from all directions to you know stay with it, you know, work hard, and you know consider consider going on. Uh, into, into music, and the Tony had the same background uh, mm -hmm. in encouragement, and and look where we ended up. Itinerary, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so this was like in your in your teens, right? Yeah. Then, but when when did you actually start? When did you first blow into a horn? Then, oh, I, do you remember that? Mid fifties, but I'm an old guy, remember. <laughs> I, I know, but but so you were you were still like you were not in your teens, yeah? You were under ten, or probably. Mm -hmm. Wow, wow. And what what was the? Uh, you said that the teachers were all great, and you described a little bit of who they were um, and where they come from. But what was the curriculum like back then? Was it like a combination of classical and jazz already, or was jazz already a thing? Was it no? Actually it was, like, there was no jazz program. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and there were no no classroom music music things. It was the uh, uh, the performing ensembles, the orchestra, and the band, and the chorus uh, that I, w I was heavily in involved with. Uh, uh, and it was it was a great social thing to, to be in. Uh, uh, you know, we we marched around on the field during football games and, and played concerts and. and and so forth, and uh, it was it was a good it was a good experience. Right? Okay, so so you had you had like a pri private lessons with the teacher for your instrument, and the the private lessons would cover like learning to play, like technically learning to read, um, also also like maybe some ear training or something like that. Or no, that I um, that I didn't was, get until I got into college. I, I went on into music school with Boston University. I, and uh, they had your your training, then harmony training, but uh, a lot of a lot of it I kind of had instinctively. But uh, I'm fortunate that you, you work hard, play, as you know, you work hard playing music. But there's got to be something inside, or else you uh, you're just you're not gonna you may enjoy it, but uh, you're not gonna have much success at it. Uh, and I was lucky uh, to you know, to have. Uh, Oh, I don't want to call it talent, but I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but it's it's a gift, uh, which I'm lucky enough to have. Uh, it uh, that's just started to focus when I got into, into music school. It's interesting, or in the same uh, in the same situation under the same umbrella. Well, uh, all three music teachers in the high school were encouraging me to go on and. and in major in music, the guidance counselor at the high school uh, couldn't relate to that at all. Uh, 
you know, how can you possibly earn a living playing an instrument? It's not possible. So they said, all right, if you're going to go to music school, get a teaching degree. And I remember this phrase, well, uh, so you'll always have something to fall back on. I said, okay, I'm being advised by somebody in a suit. Let me try. And I did. I got an education degree along with the music. Uh, in retrospect, or in hindsight, I, I, I can't think of a lousier reason to become a teacher, to, to turn around and intern and try to inspire kids, or, or if there's a classroom full of kids who want to learn music, and, and up in front there's somebody standing there who only is there because they couldn't get another job. Uh, I did so. I'm not a uh, I'm not a music teacher. <laughs> I never will. <laughs> so this 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 topic of uh, talent or being gifted or whatever or or having a having a rich imagination or, or it's 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 an interesting it's a very interesting topic I think because like you said you said like it's not enough to be technically proficient or like let's say physically able. To, uh, to to play a musical instrument, there needs to be something else, and and um, and do you have any idea what drives that part in you? You know that uh, musical curiosity or whatever. Like I don't, I don't know. Do do you have any? Have you ever thought about that? Uh, maybe not focused <laughs> in the way you're asking, but. I mean, I always loved music. I was listening to it you know, forever, all the way through high school, and, uh, all different kinds of music. Uh, and being in the performing on, ensembles at, uh, in high school and then in, in college. And in college, as I said, I, I subbed with uh, the Boston Pops several times and uh, the, with the Boston Symphony once, one time, during the summer, <laughs> not the regular season, but an amazing experience. Uh, Fritz Reiner was a scary. That was one scary guy. He would look at you then. It was like you. The pops was Arthur Fiedler. It was the complete opposite. He, he was he was he was an entertainer. Really, it didn't matter whether he was on the podium or not. But he was great at public relations, and he put on a good show. So the, the pops was very loose. Uh, I remember he had a red Volkswagen. He was an unofficial uh, or an honorary fireman in Boston. Uh, so he had a red Volkswagen with a red light on it. And he had a, he had a, a fire radiator. He would drive around and uh, you know go to fires and get photographed. And, uh, he looked like a conductor. He had the flowing white hair. Uh, yeah, I started playing jazz and doing jazz jazz gigs on the side in, in college. Again, Boston University had no jazz program then. Uh, it was a long time ago. I think all, all music schools probably have them now, but, uh, which is realistic. And across town uh, was Berkeley School of Music, uh, where everybody was going to learn jazz. And they were very realistic about it. So, yeah, you can get a degree or not. It doesn't matter. Learn to play your horn and get to know people, hang out, <laughs> schmooze, get gigs. Uh, in Boston, it was, yeah, you can do that if you want, but get the teaching. So, uh, so were, were you ever a schmoozer? Uh, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Because it was fun. Yeah. Or hang. <laughs> Uh-huh. I guess the rule is thou shalt hang. <laughs> I, I, you get to the you hang afterwards at the bar, get to know people, go to other people's kids. All of that. So you're, do you remember anything about like your first keyboard gigs? Were those like piano or organ or Rhodes? Or do- For a while I was trying to play bass. Uh, oh. Yeah. I uh, probably did it very badly, but it was uh, on the surface. It's, it's not a hard instrument to play. Uh, I say that with apologies to to bass players everywhere. <laughs> uh, it, uh, it and also I was able to borrow a bass from the school. And I never owned one. Uh, it, I I faked it almost. It was kind of it was fun, but it was also big. I think. Uh, a nuisance to carry around, so that I didn't go very far with that. Uh, but mostly piano. Uh, I was taking, I was still taking piano lessons in, in college, uh, which would be classical. Uh, uh, playing jazz, I developed all kinds of bad habits, fingering and stuff, and then I would get chewed out of lessons by, by you know, t- you know, playing two notes in a row with the same fingers. No, 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 you don't, no, you don't do that. Stop doing that. You know, I'm going to recommend you to another teacher. <laughs> I got that a couple of times. But, um, took me a while to, to, to focus and, and uh, settle into something. Mm-hmm. So, so it's uh, like the way that I um, imagined this is that you were kind of like um, kind of surrounded, surrounded by music and surrounded by um, opportunities, let's say, to uh, to kind of find your voice, right? Like without and without any, um, uh, as you said, there were no jazz schools or anything. So, like having, as you said, like having kind of like a classical guitar uh, piano teacher, kind of like tell you what you yeah. shouldn't yeah. do, and and so, but 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 still, you 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 then learned and started to apply yourself to to music and to the music that you loved and. Uh, and what what was your um, like you said like 1970? Um, what was like the first like proper gig you did? Uh, I I went to New York City uh, as a French horn player. Uh, I actually went I went earlier than that in 1965. Uh, I went to New York and uh, uh, to do a master's degree at Juilliard, uh, which was also a great experience, and that was pure. French horn major in, uh, with some study in composition. Uh, at that point, any thoughts of being a music teacher, no, gone. I realized that I had wasted four years, but it was, it was the wrong direction. Uh, New York was uh, you know, suddenly exposed to great musicians everywhere. Uh, paradoxically, uh, my music tastes are very eclectic. And somewhere while I was in Boston, I, we had a Dixieland band at, at the college. It's just a, a, a bunch of guys and myself. And I got into playing banjo, which, which is an easy instrument to play. It's like way easier than guitar. Certainly, it's only got four strings. All you got to do is strum it and, uh, and just 
play chords, no leads at all, no single string stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, uh, while I was in Boston, I, I was working uh, uh, a lot of nights in a, a local club called the Red Garter, which uh, uh, had a banjo band in it with three tubas, no, I'm sorry, three banjos, tuba, trombone, and washboard. We played nothing written after 1930. I learned a lot. I learned a lot of songs. Uh, 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 Minnie the Mermaid. I could sing it to you now. I won't. Which we did with a medley as a medley with "By the Sea, By the Sea" and "Paddle and Madeline Home." The stuff that sticks in your head. I, I don't remember where I was last week. I remember Minnie the Mermaid. <laughs> uh, when I when I went to New York, uh, you know, I was in an apartment with a roommate, going to school. I had no work at all because I didn't know anybody yet. But the Red Garter also had a club in New York in Greenwich Village, and I walked right into a, a six night a week job. Uh, same thing: three banjos, two of trombone, and washboard. Uh, I. A, uh, a couple of good friends of mine were also in that band that I'd known in Boston. Uh, Dave Barjohn, a wonderful trombone player, uh, moved to New York. He was playing trombone in that band until he got settled a little better. Uh, it, it, we were in the Dixieland band at, in, in Boston. But, uh, eventually, I, I stopped with the banjo nonsense because I started to get more studio work. Doug. Turn, turn, but somewhere in the early seventies, I got, I got fascinated by synthesizers. Uh, I was still playing piano a, a, a little bit, uh, probably not very well. And I realized that, you know, if I was going to focus on being a studio musician, the New York City, there are killer piano players coming out of the woodwork. That I, I was not going to earn a living doing that. French horn player, I, I did a lot, of, a lot of recording sessions on that. Synthesizers, that was like a whole new thing. And I, uh, I got my first one in 1973. Oh, you can see it, uh, back over my shoulder with Daffy Duck sitting on it. You only see part of it. That's my mini Moog from 1973. I've still got it. Uh, I sold a lot of older instruments, but not that one. That, that one, you, you bury me with that one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, that was a good, uh, it's, it's, it's 70s were interesting. It, it was a good decade for musicians. Everybody was working. It was a lot of work. Uh, it was a lousy decade for music. The disco had taken over everything. Uh, the recording sessions I was doing two, sometimes three a day, uh, uh, carrying a mini Moog around in a, in a big, heavy case, it, a typical jingle commercial session would get there at nine in the morning. They want the band out by 9.30 so they can set up for horns or vocals or whatever. Uh, the piece is 30 seconds long, maybe 30 and a 60 second long, that, that was it. Uh, more often than not, it would be a disco groove. Uh, to make things go faster and record easily, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of producers would hire two drummers. Uh, one drummer would just do the hi hat, 
that's it, nothing else. <laughs> the other drummer would would play kick and snare. My job was to do the electric tom-tom fills. Do -do, do -do, do -do. That was it. Uh, wow. Or a typical set of Star Wars came out in the middle of the 70s, and, uh, which means I got to do laser shots and spaceship flybys. Like, that's it. That's one key. That it. I can go pack up and leave. Uh, scale, I think, was $52 and change at the time. That's it. Another $52. Uh, that, uh, you know, I would have been trapped in that for forever. Might have still been doing it up till 2000 and then retired. Uh, except uh, 73, 74. 73, 74. Oh man, how can I not remember? What one of those? Uh, good friend of mine, Howard Johnson, uh, who died not too long ago, but he was a very remarkable tuba player, uh, quite well known. He played with the band, uh, uh, had his own jazz group, four tubas and a rhythm section. It's called uh, uh, Substructure. Uh, it, you know, Howard played gigs, jazz gigs, would be piano, bass, drums, tuba. It, it had a tremendous range. Uh, he could do almost anything on it. Uh, I remember Howard saying to me once that there's no such thing as a limited instrument, only limited musicians. And he proved it. He won the downbeat poll almost. They might as well have just handed the uh, miscellaneous instrument category to him. Uh, because he just won it all the time. Uh, Howard was playing with Gil Evans at the time. He had been for quite a while. Uh, it was on a Tuesday. Uh, it was a Tuesday, maybe 8 o'clock at night, something like that. Howard called me. I was at my apartment. I'd come back. I would just you know get ready to chill for the evening. Uh, Gil Evans was playing the Village Vanguard in a six-night or Tuesday through Sunday night. Uh, uh, as, as I said, the 70s, it was a lot of work. Musicians were all working a lot. Uh, uh, the French horn player in the band uh, was, was also doing a show, uh, uh, some, a Broadway show of some kind. Uh, I don't remember who it was, which is probably just as well as so I don't feel so bad telling the story, but he lived in New Jersey. He'd come into town uh, to the Vanguard. He got there early. He opened his case. He'd forgotten his mouthpiece. And he said, you know what, hell, I didn't want to do this anyway. I got a session in the morning. And he just went home, packed up and went home. He said, I'm out. I quit. So Howard called me at home. said, Pete, you got your horn? So, well, yeah. He said, get down to the Vanguard, like, now. And I, you know, I jumped in a cab. Uh, I played that week at the Vanguard, uh, and I was in Gil's band for 16 years until he passed. And, uh, that that first night was an experience, man. I, I, I'm like, wow, I'm surrounded by uh, legendary players. I met Lenny White that night. Uh, Lenny was the drummer in the band at the time, and they had... Uh, the Vanguard stage is very small, and this was a 14-piece band. So, so guys sitting like this. Uh, and 
nobody wanted to sit next to the drums. Hard to get away from. So they they just knew that there was a horn player that somebody nobody knew except Howard uh, was coming in. So they left a space right in front of the drums uh, for the mystery horn player. And I came running in a panic, sat down, pulled over, and that was it. This huge ride symbol right over my head. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, at the time, I thought that was the loudest thing I'd ever heard. It was a long time ago. <laughs> uh, and I, well, I've been friends with Lenny White ever since. Uh, that, that was my, that, that was my experience uh, uh, with that. And I've got, at some point you got to tell me, Pete, stop. you got another question, but, uh, but my next stage from that. Oh, this is, this is too good. Oh, this is too good to keep going. <laughs> I, no, I could do the 11s for a couple hours, but then, uh, uh, I had the mini Moog already and was just messing with it at home uh, and doing sessions with it. And I had told Gil about it. And he said, bring it in. Bring it in. So it's okay. I brought it to it. He said, well, you play it. You play something. Uh, uh, there were a lot of soloists in the band. Uh, we play ahead. There might be five or six sol long soloists. Which for me, I didn't have the I didn't have the guts to stand up in that in that band. Uh, oh, no, the, the the players in it: uh, Lou Soloff was in the band, uh, Dave Barjohn, Howard Johnson, Trevor Kohler was passed. Uh, Lou Marini did it for a while. Dave Sanborn did it for a while. Uh, uh, George Adams, uh, Joe Beck was playing guitar. Ted Dunbar playing guitar. Uh, Herb Bushler, the bass player. Uh, several different drummers, Bruce Dittmus. Uh, it was an amazing band. I'm going to stand up, having never played a jazz gig in my life on French horn. No, I'll, I'll just sit here. So having the mini mode there gave, you know, I, I played some stuff. The, the band would make up an ensemble course, and I'd I, I play it with them. Sometimes I'd make up parts for the head. Uh, and Gil kept telling me, do, do more of that. Okay, <laughs> and it's, I like it. And he started writing parts. You know, play play this part on this on this song. Uh, I said, but I, but there's a horn part. Said, don't worry about it. And he hired another horn player to come in and do what I couldn't get to. Finally, I just stopped bringing the horn. I uh, and I added a uh, I added a clavinet to that also. I a clavinet and the mini moog stacked on top of it. And that's that's what I did with the band. You know, for about did, did did this this did this happen in the first few months or was this over years or maybe, like maybe it took a year oh, oh. a year oh, okay uh, I don't remember exactly but there was a point where I became the electric keyboard player in the band and I, as I think back you know, uh, how many band leaders would let somebody do that when you know, one of the regular members completely change their instrument. You know, pushing aside the instrument that they were hired to play, uh, and it's not oh, bother with that. I'll get somebody else. You do that. <laughs> I was just uh, reeling back to my experiences in school with having great, uh, great teachers encouraging. But uh, Gil Gil was was part of that. He was maybe the last great teacher that I had. I. Uh, he hired players 
for his band because he liked what they did. He liked the way they played. That's it. They might or might not fit into the band. You know, by the eighties, that had gone almost out of control. Sometime, uh, at some point, I think the late seventies, maybe nineteen eighty, eighty-one, a Hiram Bullock came into the band. I, Hiram was was great, irrepressible. Uh, it, Hiram used to say, "Well, I don't play jazz. I don't know what I'm doing in this band, but I'm going to do what I do." Which for him involved singing, uh, taking long solos. He was on wireless. Or something we'd be playing "Sweet Basil." And Hiram would take a solo. He'd wander out in the audience. He'd go out on the street on the sidewalk, it, it, soloing from out there. <laughs> We're playing along. You know, Hiram is not even in the building anymore. Uh, I basically I learned ev eventually that uh, Gil. Listening to Hiram play, he heard a lot of Jimi Hendrix in Hiram. And it's, okay, you're in the band. No, do, do what you do. Not jazz. Not, but uh, Gil also refused to define jazz or what he did. Uh, he would just say, we're just making music. That's, that's it. Or, or an interviewer, a reporter, somebody would ask him you know, before a concert, well, you're going to do sketches of Spain and stuff tonight, right? And he would get angry. He said, no, 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 I, that's something I did years ago. I don't do that anymore. Okay. Uh, that was Gil. And he, he, uh, he was great at encouraging young players. And I was still a young player at that, at that point uh, uh, to just do what I do, uh, which it became electric, electric keyboards at, at, at that point. And that's it, 16 years. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's almost as good as finding um, your wife, right? In a way, like you you have you find this place where there's mutual uh, love, you know, and you know I let you do what you do, and and in, in you know in the context, as you say, of, of such an amazing band, there's um, yeah, there's there's so much that you can you can find and explore. And and you said like you had a you had a uh, the, the synthesizer and what was it underneath a, a clavinet, cembalo, or clavinet, a clavinet, clavinet, which mm -hmm. I, uh, for a long time I I hauled the clavinet and the mini mode around in Europe. You know, that's back when you could actually you know ship a heavy instrument to Europe. No, it's just baggage. It didn't even cost anything to ship it. Uh, I still have the road case. Massive road case, big enough for the clavinet, the stands, the legs, uh, and a microphone stand that I used. I would prop it, I'd put the microphone stand in front of the clavinet, and so the mini mode was resting on the clavinet and the back of it on the mic stand. And it was this huge case on wheels that I had custom built. And, and yeah, the airlines would, yeah, we'd just take it, no big deal. Uh, I hauled that around around Europe like, several times. Would go like I was younger and so. <laughs> so the, on the on the clavinet, you were kind of like, uh, would you say, um, part of the rhythm section mostly? Yeah, there wasn't uh, guitar players would kind of come and go uh, through that, and there wasn't always a guitar player in, you know, in the band. Uh, Gil. Uh, played piano or Fender Rhodes uh, a lot. A lot of times he would get 
uh, very rarely an acoustic piano, actually, unless we were doing an indoor theater. So he was usually playing Rhodes. But his, his way of comping, according, he would just stab at things or just play something completely unrelated, just, it's just something he felt like playing. Uh, uh, for everything that he was brilliant at, comping for soloists was not something he was good at. It was just not part of his makeup. So with the clarinet, I could do that. And depending on where we were playing, if there was a Hammond nearby, I'd ask him to bring that up. I'd, I'd play that some too. Having this, this whole story is so fascinating, Pete. Like, yeah. like you know, the banjo, I, I had no idea, for yeah. example. But uh, it's, 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 it's like, like you had the opportunity to become like, a, like a complete musician by having work with strings, <laughs> you know, like blowing into something. <laughs> And, and and then also like to be like in the role of a uh, sound design guy in the studio making uh, <laughs> playing tops and uh, and then becoming a soloist in the in the orchestra with a synthesizer and then also being a rhythm rhythm player on, on a keyboard instrument that's that's pretty pretty amazing because it gives you gives you like all the all the perspective uh, perspectives on the composition as well right. Yeah. Because I see that as, as something really really unique for um, like certain some musicians they have this um, have had this opportunity to understand music from 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 almost every perspective yeah, well, for, and uh, for an arranger yeah. or or an orchestra yes. something I did a lot of during the eighties and nineties uh, working for music production houses in New York mainly uh, composed some stuff. Uh, It wasn't great, but I, I discovered I was a good arranger. Uh, orchestrating came easily because I knew the instruments well and, and did a lot of big projects that way. Uh, but when, when you did do, when you did do that kind of work, did you kind of like use the keyboard as sort of like the to try out ideas, or was this something that you were already so good at that you could just imagine it and write it down? Occasionally, you know, if I wanted to experiment with some chord changes, I, I would. Uh, uh, somewhere in the 80s, I got into finale. But when I started doing that, the, uh, there was no finale. There was uh, computers were just starting to become accessible in the early 80s. And there was nothing like finale. No, actually, there was, there was a program. I had it. I can't remember what it was. It wasn't very good. It was very rudimentary. And the, it printed out stuff on a uh, on an inkjet printer, which was all that was available, and it was barely legible. I mean, it was wrong. Uh, I remember I did try doing some charts that way. Once I remember bringing some charts into a session, and handing out parts, and Ron Carter, a legendary bass player, so like, uh, I, I handed him a part, and I probably called him Mr. Carter at that point. Uh, and he, he just looked at him, he scowled and said, the bass clefs are too small. And the, I was mortified. I just, I just walked, I just walked away. Said, uh, but, and I'm sorry, I got off the mark. But the, the point was that uh, to do arranging or orchestrating, I, 
even if the computers were better, they were just too slow. The fastest thing I could do was put a piece of score paper in front of me and check something on the piano occasionally, but to just write, uh, I was done, send it over to a part copyist and, and move on to the next job. It's kind of, in a way that's still true now. Uh, I get asked occasionally if I compose on finale. I don't. Uh, it would, uh, the time it takes you to put them, put the data into the computer, just slows you down. If you've got an idea, play it, scribble it out, or or, or something, or, or or just turn on a recorder or something, and, and just make enough notes that I can figure it out again. But, uh, it's really not what a it's really not what finale should be for. It's for music notation and, and publication and duplication. Transpose, transpose, that's great. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, I hear you. It's, it's funny because I, I, I kind of do the same. Like I compose with um, whatever tools, but never, I would never compose in a notation, in notation software. No, it's just, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. Well, the idea is your computer, uh, what a computer does well is is reproduce or think or add one and one and see what you get or subtract one number from another. That's what a computer does, and it does it blindingly fast. But you have to give it all that information first. You have to input the data, and that takes a long time. And that's also where mistakes get made. Uh, 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 so no, I, I don't do that. I, uh, something something occurred to me also that uh, just backtracking a little bit that my background was very eclectic or became very eclectic. Yeah, Tony and I were trained classical way from the beginning of high school, and we both went on to college. Uh, I, I, uh, Tony went to Eastman School at Rochester, a wonderful school. Uh, uh, I don't know if they had a jazz program. I suspect not. Uh, uh, again, this was in in the sixties, in the late sixties. Uh, all right. So they our training in the ensembles were all classical, or or in, in case of both schools, uh, the concert band, which was classical, because the Eastman Wind Ensemble, the band was tremendously famous at, at the time. Uh, it we kind of found ways to go out somewhere else. Uh, I remember, uh, uh, again, going back a long way, but uh, uh, Chuck Mangione was uh, doing his big orchestra concerts during those periods, and he couldn't always get enough strong players there, which surprised me because the Eastman great school and they had great brass players there. Uh, uh, but maybe because of my experience, uh, he used to bring me up to Rochester uh, to play principal horn on a lot of his uh, a lot of his concerts, big ones, you know, chorus and orchestra uh, and rhythm section, uh, which is where I met Steve Gadd. Uh, 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 Steve was in Rochester at the same the same time that Tony was. Uh, and you know, I thought you know, three guys sitting to my right, I thought they were really good. Players, it was almost a little embarrassing. Why is Chuck bringing in a ringer from New York? But I, uh, I, I hope they didn't feel 
it, it must have felt a little bit strange. Who is this guy? Uh, but what if, uh, one of those times we rehearsed, and I had I had a, a night off in Rochester, and uh, it, uh, Steve Gatt and Tony were playing a lounge gig with Gap Mangione. Uh, you know, in a bar, they were on a stage up in back of a bar, a small stage, just playing. Well, people sat at the bar, and, and I sat at the bar, and I watched the three of them playing. It was <laughs> pretty amazing. That's the first time I remember Tony playing jazz. Uh, and he yeah, he did find his ways in, into that. And, and eventually did a lot of good uh, a lot of good jazz games. He played with Buddy Rich. And, uh, uh, Oh, he'll remember better than I, I did, but but he he kind of got focused into into playing uh, pop and rock, and he found the right uh, artists to work with, and and the right producers found him, and he, uh, Steve Gadd did the same same thing, and they both became very successful uh, reasonably quickly. I think my eclectic background, I was doing this, you know. I got a banjo gig tonight. I'm sorry, I can't. I can't come here. You, <laughs> uh, I need the money. I mean, I put, I put myself through school playing banjo. I, uh, uh, I got a very eclectic background, so I learned a lot about what other people are doing. Uh, sometimes I could be part of it. Sometimes not. Or uh, anybody needed needed to know the chords from Minnie the Mermaid. I could tell them, but. Uh, uh, I don't recommend that for other people. I would say, you know, listen, you know, listen to a lot of music, listen to a lot of stuff, but don't, you know, don't waste your time playing Dixieland gigs unless that's what you want to do. Because uh, some of the guys I played with back then, they're still doing it. They're still doing Dixieland because they loved it. I didn't like it. Uh -huh. I didn't love it. I did. It was a game we got paid well. Uh, they, uh, uh, a lot of single women came into the club. Uh, you know, nurses, stewardesses. It was like, it was great. Young guy in college it was it was great. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, like I sometimes wonder, like if if you say like, yeah, maybe you know, playing doing this gig wasn't important, but you've also said, you know, you've had this eclectic or you have this eclectic background, and mm -hmm. like maybe even the things that don't seem like they were important in the grander scheme of things, they were. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I don't know. Maybe just for your, even, even for the, your rhythm comping uh, on the on the keyboard later. Maybe that, you know, the banjo playing helped. I don't know. Just, <laughs> just thinking out loud. Here. Mind you, we're talking about three banjos all whacking away loud, but none of them mics. Uh, we used heavy gauge steel strings uh, and metal picks made them out of aluminum uh, to get volume. To get more volume out of thing, and it was all strumming. I mean, it was uh, no single string work at all. Uh, it was loud, ratchety, noisy. And it was fun, but it's a beer was. Uh, no, no, they had hard liquor, but it was mostly beer and pitchers, and uh, and peanuts. Uh, and the waiters would walk around, young guys, college guys. All yelling and singing along with the band, yelling at people if they weren't singing, uh, just making a whole lot of noise. And there were always baskets of peanuts in the shelves. And people would drink a lot of beer and they you know, crack open the peanuts and put the shelves back in the basket. And the waiter would come along with a bag, basket full of shelves, and just dump them on the floor, put it back. 
it was crazy. It's a crazy place. And, uh, the, the owner uh, was also a banjo player. It was his hobby. Uh, uh, his family had made a fortune in the junk business. Uh, so he owned junkyards all over the place. Uh, and his hobby was uh, playing banjo in, in this old ragtime style, not, not Dixie. We played no Dixie line. Uh, and I, I would not call it jazz at all. I don't know what it was. It was uh, I don't know, minstrel stuff, but loud. <laughs> uh, it, uh, at one point, he decided he was paying too much to the Red Garter chain to license the name. So he broke away from them, uh, changed the club's name to Your Father's Mustache, and it continued that way for, for a few years. Uh, I still see uh, posts on Facebook from uh, God. Oh, he had... He had nine or ten clubs all over the all over the the, the states. There was one in New Orleans, uh, Chicago, L.A. Uh, if you wanted to, you could go to another city and get a job there for a while. If you really felt you wanted to do that, I didn't. Uh, but I see, uh, you know, over the years, there were hundreds of musicians who played in those bands, uh, and they still occasionally have group posts or Zoom conferences on Facebook. Uh, uh, a lot of, I don't know any of them anymore, but uh, a lot of them I never met because I only played in the New York club. Uh, but it was, it was a crazy time. To, I got a I got a, an email just about two weeks ago from uh, from somebody uh, who was a friend of an old friend of mine in New York. Uh, and apparently his father had passed away. Uh, his father lived in Woodstock. And his father was very fond of New Orleans, traditional New Orleans music. Uh, so uh, the man wanted to find some musicians up here to play a New Orleans style funeral. And I'm going, geez, nobody up here does that, do they? I thought, well, let me think. I called a trumpet player that I know, a jazz trumpet, Chris Payson, a great trumpet player. Uh, he said, yeah, you can do that. I said, could you call some guys? I don't even know who to call. For about, for about 30 seconds, I considered my banjo was around here somewhere. Uh, uh, for about 30 seconds, I considered pulling the banjo out, making sure the strings aren't rusty, you get a new set of strings, and just playing the gig. And I realized to do that, unlike, unlike guitar, I mean, your left hand, obviously is very important. The banjo, the, you play the melody on the top string all the time and drop a chord underneath it. So you're constantly sliding up and down. Uh, well, you, you, these fingers go up and down, but this finger always is on top and always has the melody, always. So it's like, like, like this for hours with these heavy gauge steel strings. Uh, when I was doing that, you back at your father's mustache. I had calluses on all my fingers. Now, of course, I have none. I figured, should I do this? Should I take this gig? It could be fun. Then I realized my hands would be bleeding after a couple of songs. I said, no, I just, I didn't. So they did something. I had no chord instrument. I ended up three horns and a drummer. And he said it went very well. He thanked me for the call. That That's it. But, the whole eclectic thing, I said, I don't, in hindsight, I don't think it's a good idea. Uh, it's interesting. I had fun all the way. I always enjoyed 
anything I was doing, but uh, making music, uh, listening to music. I'm, I'm open to all kinds of things. But it took me a long time to figure out what I really wanted to do. Uh, my first solo album was in 1989. It took me that long to focus on, I want to do this. I, I put a band together that I liked and did an album. And I actually had a record deal at the time. Remember those? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Dram Dramavision Records, a very unusual label. Uh, I was a, a millionaire philanthropist on the label. A great guy, and he he wanted want to give back. Uh, it's his family owned half of New York City apartments, uh, owned or controlled. I knew at one point it was something like over two thousand apartments or residences in New York in Manhattan alone. Uh, it, it he walked into that business, but he wanted. He wanted to support music, so he bought a building uh, uh, down in, in Soho, built a huge recording studio. He lived upstairs, and uh, he put in a circular staircase going from the studio, from the control room up to his apartment, so he could come down and, and just hang out with the guys and see what, what was happening. Uh, and all of the profits were, were donated to uh, 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 save the planet kind of causes. Uh, he, he didn't need any money from that. He didn't make any money from that either. I mean, the people he was hiring, were, uh, it, we, we were not selling a whole lot of records. But, and he was to do whatever you want. I'll put it out. Uh, the only exception was John Schofield, who was signed to Gramavision about the same time that I was. And, and he moved on uh, after a while. And, so. But you you did play with John Schofield as well, right? I'm on a couple of his albums from the Gramavision time, and, uh, and for a while he was in Gil Evans' band. Uh, so I I played with him during that, but I have I've never worked live in a small group with John. Uh, would would have been nice, but uh, you can't do everything. Uh, but John's an incredible player. Yeah, very, very influential for me, even. Like, I, I really uh, enjoy, you know. We were on a tour. Uh, it was in the Far East. Uh, Japan. Uh, no, I think it was all Japan. Uh, at least this part of it. And uh, uh, Miles Davis's band uh, was also on, on the bill. We were supposed to open for Miles. Uh, It didn't work that way. I, th I think uh, Miles's wife was traveling with him, Cicely Tyson, uh, and she wanted no part of this. You know, band, you know, playing till midnight at night. It was messing up her day. She wanted to go shopping, have, have, have dinner, go back to the hotel, whatever. So, uh, so Miles switched it. Miles was opening for us, which is ridiculous, but. Uh, There it was. Uh, and basically, they would, the band would sound check. Miles never came with sound checks. And what he wanted to do was walk into the venue, uh, take his horn out, play a few notes, walk out the stage, play the gig, leave and go to dinner. Uh, that was it. Uh, the story, the point was, uh, 
or SCO and uh, oh dear, Mike Stern were both in the band. Uh, Mike was a wonderful player, but he, he had at the time, uh, uh, I don't want to say substance abuse. I think he was just drinking a lot. Uh, and uh, he was not always right on it, but a wonderful player, a very soulful player, a great guy too. But, uh, yeah, the uh, the routines that I could see in Miles' band, uh, he wanted everybody to solo to express themselves. But you're taking a solo. Your solo ended when Miles picked up his horn. That was it. <laughs> there was it was there was no question about about who was in charge on 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 the band. It was no mercy. Like, uh, we watched for it was a long tour through Japan. Uh, and I, I watched night after night get, uh, when, when Mike played, uh, Miles would let him go on for a long time. When John would go to play, he'd play like one chorus and Miles would cut him off like, every night. And, like, and John was like, what, what am I doing wrong? I'm trying so hard. This you know, It's the gig of a lifetime. Uh, uh, plus, you got to be thinking that anybody ever played in one of Miles' bands like that has gone on to tremendous success. Uh, we were some, it was way into the tour. We were someplace in Japan, and uh, uh, I was down in the hotel bar and I, I was talking to somebody else and drinking. Uh, and John came down into the bar. He was like, give me a drink. He was like, God damn it, what am I doing wrong? I hate this is horrible. Every every time he tells me, he cuts me off. He won't let me play. I, uh, I don't think he was saying that. You know, they let Mike do whatever whatever he wanted. But it was he. He just felt, what am I doing wrong? This is God is telling me to stop playing. Uh, uh, we're sitting at the bar. And uh, Miles's road manager came down to the bar and said, "John, come upstairs. Miles wants to talk to you." And which is, <laughs> you, you know, what's coming. Right? It's like a nice, nice knowing you. Here's your plane ticket. Uh, John came back down to the bar about ten minutes later. Uh, he was like, and you, all I could say is. Miles said he likes my playing. And apparently that same night, Miles fired Mike and sent him home. That was, he, was test, he was testing both of them. Uh, yeah, I'd, I had a couple of occasions to work for Miles. I never played in one of his bands. I, I, I almost had an opportunity to do that, but I had I had other work happening that I couldn't I couldn't get out of. Stupid! I should have quit whatever I was doing. Uh, but it's a anyway. That that's a, that's my, my experience with John. John's great. He's a great guy. A great player. As, as you know. Yeah. So do, do you think that that Miles really was like consciously doing these things like? Or was he also going by intuition and then kind of like? Uh, 
I mean, was he really testing them? He was extremely, extremely perceptive. Uh, and he, he, you know, he knew, he understand, understood everything. He was also a visionary. I mean, he could see what was happening with those two guys. Uh, and we're not seeing, you know, he tested both and gave Mike a, a good chance. Mike, of course, cleaned up completely after, after that. And said, there's no, uh, there's no bad end to that story. Uh, and, and John has been very successful, which is a, a good end to that story. Uh, and probably stayed with it until you know, at, at some point, Miles realized that it's got to change and change the whole thing as he's done many times. Uh, and everybody, everybody will say, wow, why is he doing that? Why he was doing that? It was great. And, it, and uh, six months later, they realized that he was ahead of everybody. And now everybody's trying to do what Miles is doing. So, mm -hmm. so let's, let's come back to your, your first solo album. What, what was that like? What, which, which band did you put together? It was a, uh, it was an elaborate project that probably should have started with something a little more contained, which I did for the, the second album. Uh, I think there were five or six horns and a big rhythm section. And it was just a, a lot of my compositions. Uh, I think I did a couple of arrangement cover songs. It's been, uh, well, not, I enjoyed that. God, it's been, what, over 30 years? I'd have to pull out the album to remember <laughs> what pieces are, are on there. Uh, well, I think it, it was one of them. Ah, I was either going to pull it out to do with the Levin Brothers, or, or I did, or I pulled it out and Tony didn't like it, or I don't remember. <laughs> but it's, uh, but it was, and we recorded uh, the whole band recorded live in the studio once and everything, which is. Uh, I, I did that. Uh, that was the first time I did it, and I did. I didn't do that again with one of my old bands until about three years ago. Where again went back into the studio with uh, uh, with a sextet, and we just played. I mean, what we played is what went on the album. So. How how do compositions come to you? I mean, how how do you compose? Um, what what inspires you to write? Uh, I'm not sure. I'll, I'll just get an idea. It'll come out of the blue, and uh, you know, play it a little bit. I'll write some of it now. And sometimes I don't get very far beyond that. But I, but if I get it written down and I, I can't go any farther, so I'll put it in finale. So I, at least I have it stored somewhere. Uh, but, uh, I was looking for uh, some untried material. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, because I want to bring some new stuff into the Levin Brothers Quartet. Uh, and I found this whole folder full of, wow, all these songs, Untitled 3, 4, 11. <laughs> uh, I opened them all up, and they're all, nothing's finished. They're all like half done, uh, not enough to put into a, a thing. I would have, uh, there were two, I thought, all right, this is interesting. Let me work on that. And neither one of them is finished yet. But, uh, I don't know, but I don't know where they, they come. It's a, I'm a better arranger yeah. than a composer, I think. I don't, I don't know, but you know, the, the reason why I'm asking is that for me, um, the, 
drive to actually compose something comes from usually comes from some sort of from an idea that has really nothing to do with an instrument even you know it could be it could be could be sort of like i don't know it can be as abstract as a as a feeling right or um or just thinking of what what would it sound like to have like three voices go like this you know like so more of a uh let's say architectural kind of idea that then i need to try out and stuff like that and that's why i'm asking because like um I don't know, like with, with Tony, for example, when I realized that he kind of like gets the idea for a melody, like he has a, like a, a melody and like the idea of sort of the harmonization already in his head. And so that's why I'm asking, like, what, what is it that like these little ideas that you've, un, you know, incomplete ideas that you've written down, are those chord changes? Is it a melody? Is it, you know, what is it? Is it a rhythm? Oh, can you please describe for us what it's it is? It's hard to say. I, I just, uh, ideas just, just come to me. But like yourself, they, it usually gets triggered by something else. Uh, I, for many, many years, I've been doing music uh, to accompany video or film. And when I see something, when I see an image, uh, music pops in my head right away or a texture uh and i can well i can blast something out really quickly but, but just sitting at the piano nothing not looking at anything uh you know i'll mess around i'll find i'll find myself playing something that i played before or just a ballad that i, that I play on gigs or something. nothing there but an image will will inspire me i had uh, uh i had an idea uh, well, it's been a couple of years now, but uh, in the 70s, as I got more elect electric instruments, electronic instruments, in the 80s, would, uh, I was early on, I had a computer controlling uh, modules of instruments in the early early 80s, and it got very elaborate by the mid-80s. Mid uh, I was doing a lot of... Uh, or orchestrating with electronics, I would, I would call it electronic orchestrations. Uh, but I'm on a lot of film scores doing that. Uh, it, uh, the first time I did that, <laughs> the composer asked me how I wanted to be credited. And I, I, it, something, I don't know where I'd heard it, but the, the term electronic realizations came to me. And he said, that's good. And put it, so I used to ask for that all, all the time, electronic realizations, which meant it was somebody else's composition, but I was making it happen. Uh, I hadn't done that since, since the late 70s or 80s. But during the 80s, you know, I had a lot of projects that are all synthesizing. And a few things in the 90s, but to really do a serious compositional piece, I hadn't done that in decades. Uh, it was about three years ago, I decided I wanted to get back into that and was searching for ideas. About the same time, I got uh, the latest Moog synthesizer. It's, a, it's out of the piece up here. It's a Moog one up there. It's a huge, expensive, big thing. Uh, 
it weighs 70 odd pounds and it, it brought it into the studio. That's it staying in the studio. Uh, uh, it's a 16 voice instrument, so I can do a lot on it. Uh, uh, analog pro pro processing, but all digital control. It's, it's great. It's a great instrument. Uh, not too many of them out there. They're very expensive. And I think Moog is, uh, they wanted that to be their flagship instrument. I uh, talked it up a lot and pretty quickly found that everybody who was willing to shell out $8,000 for a new experimental instrument, yeah, they sold a lot of them in the first couple of months and then it, it went down to everybody who was interested bought one and that was it. Uh, there weren't many of us. But at the time, I was thinking, uh, I mean, do a classical piece. Uh, in a piece that I've always loved is uh, a sweet host, the planets. And I, you know, I got the score and I'm looking at it, man, oof, a lot of notes. Uh, but hey, it's it's MIDI. I can slow it down. I can play the I can play the violin parts in, uh, and multi-track obviously as long as I want. So let me do that. And I, uh, and I was starting to explore it, and I don't remember how I came across it, but. I, uh, I realized that Gershon Kingsley had done that many years ago. It's been done. Okay, so much for the planets. And I think, well, you know, let me do my own. Let me take each planet. I uh, get him and read up about each planet and, and what hits me. Uh, and I started working on that, but I, I got really busy at the same time. I uh, The Levin brothers were touring. Uh, I had a lot of recording work here. I was playing a lot of local gigs and somehow didn't get much farther than that. But it was, uh, uh, you know, I mean, some of the images were, uh, you know, Mercury goes real fast. Okay, so do, do that. Uh, Jupiter is big, ponderous, okay, I, I got that. Jupiter. Uh, uh, Earth, because there's people with just a big uh, chaos, a lot of stuff happening at the same time. You know, I decided to set up a hip hop groove and just play all kinds of stuff over it, whatever fit. Sometimes dropping the, the percussion out, replacing it with something up, and that groove would always be there. But uh, like a cacophony of, of stuff. Uh, and of course, you know, I can pull out uh, ethnic samples of all kind. You know, you put a little kodo in there for a minute and some African instruments. <laughs> None of this is completed. They're all ideas. Maybe I'll do it someday. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to that. But it's, a, but it's the idea, of, as you said, of the inspiration. Uh, and I, I should be asking you where yours come from sometime. It was uh, maybe two years ago at the at the music camp up in Big Indian. I, I just sat in the back of the room in one of your one of your classes and you did a thing. You just started a note sustaining. We're talking about it, then added another note and another note and it was becoming a piece right in front of us. So like uh, unless you had worked it out ahead of time, you could you compose something right in front of us. And I was this is this is cool. Uh, let me give you a call when this is over. Like, 
I mean, I'll see if I can add a note to what you're doing. <laughs> oh, I, I, that would be wonderful. Yeah, you know, for me, for me, composition is is something that is uh, like anything I do with music is composition to me, mm -hmm. and composition is what is what is really actually. I I'm not a. I mean, let me put it this way: I'm I'm not a. a a performer. I don't feel like I am a performer. I am a performer because I'm a composer. It's so that Absolutely. it's it's that it's that way. Like I need to perform because I want to hear what I want to compose, <laughs> and and so that's why why um, you know I was from the very beginning very much interested in composing in real time in the moment. And since I I started in the late. 90s really right so i was I, in my in my uh when i was 18 20 and that was the time when digital delays were affordable yeah. and you know in the mid mid 90s there were like these uh, maybe you'll remember it like it was uh echoplex but not the old echoplex the new like a 90 second loop delay you know yeah. and, and those those are the tools that i grew up with and and that i sort of like learned to master early on and uh, yes, I really love to 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 compose instantaneously. You know, it's not imp you could call it improvisation, but it's not because if you if you play what you play, you know, if you have a way to listen back to what you played immediately, you can respond to it just like a composer mm -hmm. does. And um, and I, I just love that. That's really the the jazz process is mostly where I live in. It's improvising. Uh, really, you have a structure, a chord structure, and a, a melody, uh, and in between, you're composing. Uh, you, know, you may, you know, 10 seconds after you play something, you've probably already forgotten it because it didn't get notated, unless it's recorded. Uh, but it's really composing on the, on the spot, uh, which some people do well and some people do it very badly. But, it's the nature of jazz. You know, and it's good jazz and bad. And, jazz. I, and I think, like for me, the the way that I see the the progression of improvised jazz in a way in the last twenty, let's say twenty five years, at least, like in my world, is that uh, the improvisational part of jazz has become or has stretched out to also include the improvisation of the melody and the form so basically let's say like the first statement you make improvisationally sort of becomes the head of the composition so yeah. you, you you sort of remember what you played which means you can refer back to it and by referring back to something you're creating structure in the moment that'll happen it'll happen sometime uh, it's interesting uh, my take on miles davis the soloing or when he's playing the melody, uh, a lot of times he does a standard song that everybody knows, and he's kind of recomposing like like the melody. But for Miles, when it had a tremendous technique years ago when he was playing bebop, uh, but he stopped using that. He said, "Well, that's not what it's about." But my take on Miles was his choice of notes. Uh, you know, the, the band roaring, he would just pick one note and wow, that that was a thing. That 
that's a genius level. You can start thinking of people who, performers who do that. It can be in any genre. Frank Sinatra would do that. Frank could hit a note, one syllable, and could get more expression in that syllable than, than a lot of vocalists can get in a whole set. It's a, it's a, it's a genius. It's, you, you either uh, can conceive of that and uh, have the technique to do it, or you don't. There's, uh, there's nothing in between. By the way, I suspect a lot of people would 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 take issue with you saying I'm not a performer. I think anybody who's just seen a stickman gig uh, would, would probably argue the point. Would I would? Uh, it is if you compose or creating stuff. It, it, uh, yeah, there's there's big compositional factors in improvising. Uh, one interesting observation about jazz is. Uh, Traditionally, you play the song, play the head, you improvise. Everybody takes solos, and you play the head again to go out. Uh, a long time ago, I went to, why do they bother? <laughs> why bother? Just a bunch of solos and stop playing. Uh, it's uh, My take on it was that after all of that, which could go anywhere, and Gil Evans' band it very often did go to territory unknown, uh, uh, play, playing the melody going out, both the players and the listeners, the perception of that song would have changed because of everything that came before it, uh, which with Gill's songs with, with so many great soloists in the band, uh, you know, at any, any given point, there would be, you know, six, eight horn players at least you know, plus strong rhythm section players, but you know, it could be five or six long solos in every song. Uh, uh, there was one, uh, it might've been the first week of the Village Vanguard. Uh, I, I think my first week with Guild, uh, Howard Johnson was hired to play tuba. Uh, uh, he has some other instruments that he, he liked. He would play flugelhorn occasionally. And he had a little penny whistle that he would carry around. It's a great thing. Put in your pocket and you go sit in with bands, just pull this little thing out. Uh, uh, we played some tune. I don't know when, it, I don't know what it was. It didn't matter. Howard took a solo, took the first solo. He sat there, you know, like this. He's waiting and waiting. Somebody else, somebody else came around again. Howard picked up a different instrument and took another solo. And Herb Bushler was a bass player, a great bass player. I, I played only only Fender bass. You know, with all the soloing going on, he just had to keep cranking it out, just playing it. And it's like, you wouldn't play in the same tune for like 20 minutes, 25 minutes. <laughs> and Howard stands up, takes another solo. And Herb looked at him, he, just, he stopped playing and just sat there like this, staring at Howard until Howard's finally had a, he finished his solo, he sat down, then Herb started to play again. Crazy, but Gil loved all this. He loved it. He he just wanted to see what would happen. But uh, he went from his sketches of Spain and Porgy and Bess years to uh, he fell in love with Jimi Hendrix and blues. Uh, 
the blues origin. The band didn't play blues, obviously. But, but what you said, that's where the stuff is coming from. Some of it comes from Latin influences. He wasn't that into that. Blues, he was definitely into. Uh, and he just loved everything Everything that happened. We, we, the, we played uh, when we were in town, we were in, in New York, between tours. We played every Monday night at Sweet Basil in the village, uh, which is uh, one of the clubs that's gone now. Uh, it was packed every Monday night. Uh, we're supposed we're supposed to play sets at nine and eleven. Uh, by ten o'clock, there'd be enough of the band there that we could start. And Gil, there was no set list ever. Sixteen years. Uh, I mean, with, we, when we were recording or, or being videoed for, for TV, no set list. Which Gil would just, he'd suddenly think, and he would just start playing one of the songs. And you know, the veterans had been with it for a while. We knew what it was immediately. We'd, we'd find the chart, you know, tell the newer guys, you know, we're, we're doing this. Uh, and it would vamp for a while, and somebody would count it in, and we'd start, and we'd be in the chart. Uh, he would do that at Sweet Basil. He would just start a vamp or something that implied one of the songs. We'd find the chart. Eventually, after a couple of minutes, we'd actually be playing the chart. And that would go on from, from 10 o'clock. Uh, and around midnight, 1230 in the morning or something, you know, Gil would come out of his reverie and just look up and say, did we play an hour yet? <laughs> I was like, and we're like, yeah, I think so. And we take a break and, uh, and you know, go back on at one thirty in the morning. Uh, and, you know, at that point, you know, you know, it was a school night. You know, people were leaving in groups. Uh, you know, we, we play another hour, hour and a half or, or something. It's great in New York. Uh, So when did you uh, move uh, upstate? Was that in the nineties? Uh, no, no, it's been it's been about twenty years now. Uh, Nineteen, it'd be nine, it'd be twenty years this summer. So uh, I'd hit a point where uh, I I was traveling a lot and doing a lot of tracking work. We're well, still doing tracking work in in Manhattan, but not so much anymore. A lot of the, a lot of recording studios had moved out of the, out of the city, you know, because it was just too expensive to, to stay there. Uh, it's it's frightening now, but even even twenty years ago, uh, New York City was very expensive. Uh, I always kept a car in the city. It was garaged in the basement of my building. Uh, it was four hundred a month you know, to keep my car off the street. And I used it to. To good advantage, I could keep some instruments, amplifiers, and stuff in the car, because uh, the, the the lot of tenants knew me very well, and I tipped them well. Uh, but like doing sweet basil, I would just go downstairs with an instrument, pull my car out. Uh, I'd call them out at the car, be ready. I'd just drive across town to the village. Uh, uh, after ten o'clock, you didn't have to feed the meters anymore. I knew not to show up at nine o'clock. I'd be the only one there. Uh, and to, you, when I was done, get my car, drive back to the garage. So I was saving on taxi fares. That was my uh, 
on my rationalizing for spending 400 a month. But before uh, before I did that, I had hubcaps stolen, the car broken into, radio stolen twice. And so it's New York. Yeah, it's New York. And and what what made you uh, leave the city? Uh, it I'd hit a point where I was also doing a lot of tracks online for, for people I knew because I had been traveling for years in Europe many times, uh, the Far East several times. Uh, so th there were people that I'd met, uh, uh, you know, they're working on a project and wanted to, could I add something? It was usually synth synthetic stuff. Uh, Not, not piano. I was doing it out of my apartment. That I didn't have a piano, uh, but I, you know, piano samples or or, or road sample. Uh, I, I had two two six foot racks of modules, uh, all computer driven. Uh, I so I could I could crank on almost anything there. Uh, so I was I was back over the internet. I was I was doing tracks for people. It's something that's commonplace now. It wasn't quite so common at the time. Uh, the point was, you to do that, you could be anywhere. I mean, as long as you could get online, uh, the internet was slow, slow at the time, uh, but functional. Uh, it would take a long time. To, you know, if I did a, a keyboard track for somebody, it would take a long time for it to go out. I'd sit, send, and go to bed. Uh, uh, If there weren't that many gigs in Manhattan, and, uh, a lot of recording studios outside of the city. Uh, I was coming up to Woodstock a lot. I had a lot of friends up here. Uh, Tony lived up here already. I was doing recording sessions up here. Uh, and it hit a point of like, you know, I was spending a lot of money uh, to be right in Manhattan. And I really didn't have to be. You know, if I needed to. To, to do a project for, for somebody in, in New York, I'd just come in, come into town with the equipment that I needed, uh, take taxis or a cartage service that I used at, at the time. So I said, you, you know what, I'm just gonna let's move. I talked to my wife, who was, had been teaching in Connecticut all this time, and she had put in more than her 20 years. Uh, she was getting a little tired of it. Uh, Uh, both my kids were now living in New York City and working. And so she was by herself at a house in Connecticut, and we're thinking, you know what? Let's move. Let's change something. So I sold the house, sold the apartment. I, I bought an old farmhouse up outside of Woodstock, and uh, we're still here. Actually, we just moved next door. So we'll still here. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. And this is this is a new studio. I'm, I'm going to put something on the wall in the back of me. It's a nice, nice gray. It looks gray from here. Ah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know which color. Well, it's, it's a weird green. It's weird. green. <laughs> But get some pictures on the wall. I got a lot of posters and pictures of Gil Evans. We'll get them up. So this this whole um, business of um, creating music for pictures that you said kind of like came easy to you because you you get inspired by 
by images and you put your hands on the keyboards and something comes out and you have the the orchestration and uh, arranging skills to do that um was that some sort of like uh, would you say that at, at some point that really became just a job or was was it mostly still joyful for you to do that kind of work no it's always been joyful i uh, uh, some projects better than others no, obviously but i always worked for good people people i liked uh, uh the first uh yeah it was the first guy i met was a composer named jay chataway uh, who, uh he's retired uh more recently as you might not be aware of them but he did, did several feature films quite a few actually i worked on a lot of them for him uh, And then he got a gig uh, doing the Star Trek TV series. Uh, and he did that for 14 years. Was, as he puts it, as he put it, he was lost in space for 14 years. Uh, and, uh, oh, that's that's why I knew that name yeah. Yeah, from the, from the he's credits. Really good. Uh, he's at possibly my favorite composer producer I've ever worked for. He was a uh, uh, a musician, first of all, a decent piano player. He never, he never played, but I, I knew he could play. But he had jazz background. He had, uh, oh, I, I forgot what labels he was with. Maybe he was freelance, but I don't, I don't think he was on staff as A&R. But he had produced albums for, uh, for Maynard Ferguson, Riccato Barbieri. Uh, so he had, he had good credits in, in that area and was a musician himself. Uh, very musically sensitive about what was going on in the room and about what the people he hired uh, were thinking, what they were doing, what they were playing, what they were trying to, to do. And he was uh, very open at letting people inject their own ideas, if there was room for it. It's a lot of times there isn't. Uh, uh, it... Uh, for a lot of the a lot of the projects that i worked with him on uh, were hybrid projects as we do a lot we'd be in the studio for two or three weeks tracking electronics stuff as the basis and then he would bring in a string section and they would overdub to everything we did sometimes horn soloists sometimes a horn section it depends on the budget it depends on the movie uh It, uh, for me, he was always very open to my ideas, but a lot of times he'd be composing while we were in the studio. Uh, it, and once I learned his style, uh, there was, uh, at least electronically, I could duplicate a lot of, a lot of what he did and some simple cues, uh, uh, He said, "You would tell me, Pete. I got I got to finish working on this one. It's not not scored yet. Can you do this one for me?" And it could be, you know, Chuck Norris sneaking up on somebody you know, for about three minutes. And I go, "I got it." And for, for Jay, is oh, no, uh, I won't do it. It just, you know, like that thing you did at the camp. Mm, a little cluster, and he turned a corner, and I'd move it a little bit, and. 
easy to, I mean, nothing written down, but uh, Jay always gave me credits, credits on that. He put me in as composer. Uh, I still get ASCAP residuals from those damn things, things I did in the 70s. Uh, ASCAP is film, film and classical, they don't miss a thing. The jazz, forget it. They, they can't even spell jazz. Uh, but some of those uh, some of those films, his early films especially were uh, uh, we had a ball doing that we would laugh all, all the way all the way through the first one it was a gig you would never take again although you sort of did but a uh, horrible movie it was terrible it was called maniac uh, it, that he wanted to, he wanted to do some feature film work, and he needed some credits. If you haven't done anything, you can't get a gig. But uh, now it doesn't matter; you can't get a gig at all in film. Uh, you know, there are thousands of guys in Hollywood. You know, little studio. They're all well, anyway. Uh, Maniac. Uh, uh, the star of the movie was Joe Spinell. Do you know that name by chance? Yeah, and I'm I'm currently looking at him. He said, Joe was uh, a big guy, very personable, actually, very, very sweet, soft-spoken, but very ugly, just pockmarked face. He was uh, cast con consistently in a lot of featured films. He's in all the Godfather movies. He just cast as a thug. You know, if somebody's got to get beat up, he doesn't. Uh, 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 one of them, one of the Godfathers, and the revenge thing at the end. Uh, uh, he, yeah, he's the guy with the, the submachine gun who, who kills off one of the dons. And the look on his head was like, that's Joe. You don't want to give him too many speaking lines. Uh, but he got good at it. And he always wanted to uh, have the lead role in a film. So this, he got the script written, which was basically he plays a uh, an apartment building custodian in New York City, who just lives by himself in the basement, uh, and he uh, at night he goes out and he he just finds people and he kills them. Uh, uh, always a woman, sometimes a man and a woman, but always a woman. Never kills them. Never twice in the same way. It can be a gun, it can be a knife, a, a, a machete, anything. Scalps a woman, brings them back to his apartment, the, the, uh, the hair, at which point he's got a whole bunch of department store mannequins, women, and he nails the hair onto, onto the mannequin's head, which <laughs> you're laughing. Uh, it's funny. It's really funny. Yeah, the, uh, he, he couldn't get a, an experienced director to touch it. Uh, what's the director's name? Uh, Frank. I forgot his name now. It's, I'm sorry. Oh, oh, this film? Like, yeah, the director of the film. The only guy could get. William, William Lustig. Uh, yeah. Uh, this, this was the first film this director had done, the Western porn film. Uh, Okay. The best move they made was 
two good moves. One was hiring Jay Chataway to do the music. The other was hiring a really good special effects guy. Because when, when Joe scalps uh, as a, a hooker, he strangles her, uh, and then he scalps it, and you can see the blood start to seep out, and, and you figure, no, the, the camera's going to pan away. It doesn't. It just stays there while he rip, rips his back. And then you see he's hammering it onto the, the mannequin. And you were watching this happen. We're going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the movie was terrible. I mean, it was really bad. Uh, and it, uh, there'll be a good end to this. But uh, uh, even on 42nd Street that had that whole line of porno film theaters, uh, they, nobody there would play it. Uh, the Los Angeles Times, uh, trying to make a statement, uh, saying, okay, we got to draw the line somewhere. This film really got an X rating because of the violence. It was not, nobody swore. Not one bad language, no sex. Just the violence alone got an X rating. Uh, and that they, this is so bad that we don't want to take advertising for this film. They refuse to take ads. Uh, uh, an admirable move, except that censorship. And because of that, the entire film community rose up against it, speaking for the film. I remember Ed Asner on the news, you know, on network news, you know, censorship, you can't do that. Uh, but there was no way to criticize the LA Times without promoting the film. Uh, the director, uh, I apologize, I can't think of his name, really nice guy too. Uh, uh, there's, oh, there was one, uh, one scene, a woman is trying to escape is in, a, in a room, a small room, in the apartment, they're trying to escape from the guy by climbing through a window onto a fire escape. And she climbs up, and, and you see up her skirt. And we're going, Frank, no, no, come on, you can't do that. And he said, all right, I'll change it. I'll take it out. <coughs> he did. Uh, it wasn't dirty. I mean, you couldn't really see anything, but it was just tasteless. And no more tasteless than the rest of the movie. <coughs> but it's uh, because of the publicity, uh, was it, remember, uh, was it Tom Kennedy? I got the name wrong. He had a late, late night talk show, a one on one thing, an interview show. Uh, they had the director on. He got 20 minutes sitting there talking about the film on national TV. So the film was a huge success, became a cult classic. Possibly the worst film ever made. Uh, I hadn't seen it in years. I, I found it. Uh, I found a VHS copy on on Amazon. You know where you get to write reviews. Everybody was destroying the reviews. I, I gave it five stars, and I, and I they removed my review. Uh, anyway, the point was that was Jay's entry into into the film world. Uh, that he got another one that was not so great. The same director did Maniac Cop. Uh, 
was a little better. The music was better. I, I, one of the uh, signature sounds was the maniac cop. Uh, he would walk, always was on a night beat. He would just walk down the street whistling. Uh, so I had sampled my own whistling and I played the tunes. Uh, and, and basically, he liked the bad guys. It was the good guys he didn't like. So he'd go around wasting the good guys. And then because you heard that whistle coming down the street, you better get out of here. Uh, and it's you know, about getting inspiration or something. You're getting to the end of it. Jay, had, he, <laughs> he, had, he was just running out of crazy ideas. Uh, I, mean, I, I sampled Gregorian chants monks, a room full of monks, and I've been, by playing them multiple, two two or three groups of monks chanting at the same time, I got, I got these textures going on. It got to the end, the end credits, Jay, I didn't write anything. Uh, explain it in, in, in a second, but uh, the people need something there, and it's just fun. So I said, you know what, it needs a rap. We got, we got to get a rap going. Uh, and I said, okay, you do it. So I did. We created the Maniac Cop Rap. Uh, I called a comedian friend of mine back in New York. Uh, it took him half an hour to send a set of lyrics. He's uh, 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 the wrong arm of the law. I don't remember a lot of, a lot of that. Uh, somebody got it. I mean, he can't be stopped. That's why they call him the Maniac Cop. He had a line about you. You could, uh, you could something with poison. You could shoot him in an Uzi, but he'll still show up in your jacuzzi. I called the guy. I said, "Wait, no, 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 come on, that's too crazy. No, it's got to be there. It's got my best line. So, all right, it's in the movie. Uh, and uh, none of us was capable of doing the vocals. We actually auditioned rappers. Uh, and finally found somebody who was willing to do it. It was like one guy came into audition and he said, yes, I, I played it for him and I showed him the lyrics and I kind of read the lyrics down in rhythm for him, not attempting to rap. Uh, and he got to the end, he just looked at me and said, you know, rap is an art form. I got, oh boy, okay. And he just got up and walked out, he was insulted. Uh, it, uh, another guy came in, had no rhythm at all. Uh, another guy came in, uh, the only decent clue we got. I said, well, I always rap with my rap buddy. There's got to be two of us. And we, there was nobody else waiting. So we said, okay, come back tomorrow. And he came back in with his buddy. They got the gig. I said, not the end credits, but uh, I, have, I must have it somewhere. I'll send it to you. Uh, Maniac cop rap. It's just, it's cute. But in the middle of this, while we're doing it, and I got to do some suspense cues, uh, I stretched out this one where uh, oh, he pops out of his grave. Never mind. It's enough. enough of the story. Uh, in the middle of this, uh, we're working uh, just the two of us in the control room with the director. Uh, I don't believe there was any hybrid work, any 
any organic instruments used on it. I think it was just me. Uh, uh, Jay's agent column, it, uh, it's at Star Trek. They're opening up, it, uh, I forgot the composer that was doing it, but it was too much for him because it was scored for a 90 piece orchestra. Uh, it, uh, high class production. Uh, and it was just too much for him to score one every week. Uh, so they said, we need two guys and have them overlap. So uh, Jay's agent got him a crack at it. So he left me in the studio making crazy music and scary music, popcorn spillers, we call them. Uh, you know, everything's real quiet and suddenly somebody gets their throat slit and I go, like, like this, and everybody spills their popcorn. That, that, that was a way of doing it. Uh, so Jay left me in the studio for two days, uh, writing, composing some of the tracks and, and laying on, reading some of the scores while he wrote. Then we took a day off. Uh, he made some kind of excuse to the director. And the two of us drove to Universal our stage and, uh, and did the Star Trek recording session. I had a sampler with me at the time. Interesting visual inspiration the uh, that episode had a, an alien spaceship but it was like a big thing looked like a dirigible uh and just kind of floated around i don't remember the story i just remember that uh and jay thought it he, he looked at it and it looks like a whale you know just this big whale he looks at Pete. Do you have any orca sounds? And I, did, I had a huge collection of samples that I that I carried with me, uh, mostly I think that I'd created or stolen myself or whatever. And yes, I did have orca sounds. So uh, he got me on the session. Uh, it, uh, I had one. I, I hadn't brought it with me, but I had borrowed a uh, an Akai S nine hundred sampler. Do you remember those things? It was like <laughs> basic. Actually, there was that. That's oh, and I'm going to go off on another tangent. That was one of the instruments that I thought changed the music industry. Uh, it was one of the first uh, inexpensively priced, easily accessible sampler that was available to the public. Everything before that was really expensive. Uh, that Akai was cheap. Relatively cheap. I mean, it may have been two thousand, but that was that was cheap at the time for a sampler. Uh, uh, so I had borrowed one or uh, rented one there. I, I don't remember. So I took it to the session. Uh, uh, the part copyist was was a friend of mine. So he brought in a keyboard for me, and I brought a MIDI cable. And I just hooked it up, and that's it. My instructions were: I watch on a monitor. Every time I see that. Hmm, Whatever the, whatever the, <coughs> whatever the the sample, the particular sample that Jay had picked that he liked, uh, uh, that it was just ninety piece orchestra in, in front, and they record direct to two track. Uh, uh, they would they would run a multi track in case they needed to change something, only. But the the, the mixes direct direct to two track were impeccable. Uh, brilliant engineer Don Hahn 
uh, was was the guy at the time, and I, I got to know him very well. Uh, and yeah, his recordings, his orchestra recordings, his stuff was coming in were, were amazing. It just you, you would can't change anything. And that's been mixed in with the electronic woodwind instruments, three synthesizer players. Uh, uh, eight horns. He used eight eight French horn players. That was one of, one of his signature sounds on the show. Uh, it, so I was in between uh, Pat Coyle and Michael Boddicker, who both had huge synthesizer rigs. Uh, Michael, his stuff was set up in a in a horseshoe, and he was set up to the front of it, and his racks of keyboards are in front of him. Maybe three or four of them. And way up on top, uh, a video camera pointed at the conductor because he couldn't see out. Uh, the other side of me with Pat Coyle, I believe he was in Nashville now, but he was an L.A. guy, one of the L.A. guys at the time, uh, also with a large synth rig. And in between is this big space uh, with nothing there but a chair and a direct box, or two direct boxes for stereo, You're waiting for the on a monitor, uh, the video monitor, waiting for the the synth player that nobody knew. Nobody knew me out there. Uh, and I came walking in with an Akai S900, not in a case. Part just came running over with a keyboard. Uh, I found a road case. I just plopped it on that. And that's it. I sat there and I watched did this for a couple hours. It, 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 was, it was great. Jay got the job. And uh, as he Again, as he put it, he was lost in space for the next 14 years before he, before he started. Uh, before he decided he had it up. Still trying to think of the name of the other composer, the well-known guy, and it's just not coming to me. But I apologize. Was that Bel Beltrami or something? I don't know. I can't remember. I don't know. But 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 anyway, I I, I think I remember that episode. I do. I'm. I'm certain yeah. I remember that sound even. <laughs> so, so um, like this uh, maniac was from from 1980. You said right. So, so when when did when did you meet Jay? Which year? Um, he lived in Connecticut, and I had a house in Connecticut. Uh, I knew him before that. I'd done a couple of studio projects for him locally, recording it in in Connecticut. So he knew me, and he knew I used synthesizers, and that's what he wanted. He wanted electronics on on it, and doing with it. I never asked him what the budget, what his budget for Maniac was, but it was probably really low. Uh, uh, the the fun afterlife of that it was recorded in Dolby stereo, which was relatively new at the time. And of course, we went overboard with that, you know, ping-ponging sounds. Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. I can't believe we did that now, but we did. Uh, and we saw a screening in New York. Uh, and it, you know, a lot of people who were in the film, uh, a lot of them who got murdered, are, are sitting there enjoying it. They're in with, with husbands or boyfriends or girlfriends. And, uh and I was there with my wife and Jay and his wife, and we're watching. We're applauding every time somebody gets scalped. Uh, and other people who were not ready for that were like, oh, and people were leaving. But I was just screaming. It didn't mean anything. Uh, 
And uh, afterwards, uh, out in the lobby, the screening was in, in Manhattan at some theater. Uh, uh, Joe Spinell was in, in a suit and tie, and, like, was out in the lobby, just greeting people as they came out, being very pleasant. He was a very nice guy, very soft spoken. Uh, and I, my wife wouldn't go near him. She just, well, she just went around the back. I'm out of here. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and it was, well, uh, that, uh, that, that was that was the mania. mania. Oh, we saw it again in, in Danbury, Connecticut, because we wanted to see it again in a the theater. Uh, and there was only one theater. Uh, uh, let me think. There might have been something in Hartford, but we didn't want to go that far. But there was only one theater easily accessible that had Dolby Stereo. So we went there. We're sitting in the balcony. Again, we're having a great time, the four of us. <clears throat> and uh, you know, people downstairs were like, you know, the women were screaming. People were leaving, walking out. It was horrible. And I, I told you about the afterlife of the film. It was a huge success. Made a lot of money, and I still get, I still get a little bit of money. And I, I don't know, twenty bucks or something. It'd be quite from ASCAP, from, from my popcorn spiller. I did one. It was at another film date, at a much better studio. It was for a good film, actually. Uh, and uh, Jay wanted a, a good, scary sound, a popcorn spiller that we hadn't used before. And it was there was a piano in the there was a, a baby grand piano in the studio, which I wasn't using. I was doing all electronics, but I happened to have in my pocket. I just come back from a European tour, and we had stayed in the Munich Hilton. Uh, whatever, whatever reason, but only significant because the keys. They put the key on this big brass key key fob. Keychain, big clunk of a thing, so nobody would steal it. Of course, I forgot. And, and, you know, I got, I got. You know, I was going through the metal detector at the airport, and I said, "Whoa, stop!" And it was just this thing. And I said, "Okay, you can go." So I came. I brought it back to the states. I realized that scraping that thing across the piano strings was like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And we could change the speed of it with tape speed. Use that a lot. I sampled it, of course, and it's, so, so I didn't have to do it twenty times and wreck the studio piano. But, uh, I had a lot of fun doing those. But uh, but for Jay, I think as well as me, I learned a lot from him uh, how to work with other musicians, how to appreciate what they're doing for you. Uh, Jay was great at that. And also how to look at something and say, you know, this would fit. This would make that work better. Uh, that's kind of been ingrained in me for, for a long time. So that's a 20-minute answer to a simple question. I'm sorry. But I, <laughs> I get a lot of inspiration from visual things. No, very good. I, I have like... Uh... And this question has, or this topic has come up a few times in these conversations. Um, so you have really lived through, say, like all the decades so far 
of the development of music technology. And like, and I find this fascinating. Uh, like for me, I became aware of music uh, electronics, let's say in the mid eighties, maybe um, even before, well, when, when synthesizers first got, got the MIDI plug, you know, like I remember that. Um, so, and since then, a lot has changed. Like you said, like the affordable samplers in the early nineties and, and then obviously people starting to record um, their uh, DAWs at home in the early 2000s. And now at this time, like with the software we have available, like we can do anything, right? Like you, you, could, you could carry your sample library like on, on your phone uh, and have all the sound in the world available and even the technology to, to mangle those sounds on your, you. You could have that on your phone. So, uh, can, are you kind of like still really interested in, in new sounds and new technology when it comes to, uh, to this, to music, to sounds um, and, 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 and would you, and, and do you, do you think there's going to be like something even more mind boggling than what we already have? Yes. There's a simple answer. Uh, uh, a, a couple of things I was, uh, there was electronic music, quite a bit of it happening before the 70s. Uh, it was, it involved a room full of equipment, uh, you know, big tube, you know, vacuum tube units that would, gen that would oscillate and generate sound. Uh, for a while, in the six, late 60s, uh, I was on staff at a, uh, a recording studio in Connecticut. I had a lot of time to experiment. Uh, uh, they had me producing some stuff. I recorded a couple of albums. There were a jug band that I was part of <laughs> before electronics. Uh, but I had already been listening to some classical electronic stuff. And it was mind-boggling that all the equipment that must have been needed, a room full of equipment just to make a noise. Uh, I forgot exactly when switched on Bach happened, but that was a huge instrument. You can only play one note at a time, and you needed all the patch chords. You know, you know to connect this to that to that uh, to make a sound happen. You, know, you had to build a sound, and because the term patch got carried forward uh, to a point where. Uh, you know, young musicians patch. What does that mean? They don't know, but they use the word anyway. It comes from plugging in all that stuff in, in, in the big modular mode. Uh, I probably still have a recording around. There was an album, kind of Hank Badings. Uh, I, he just looked interesting. It was a picture of equipment on the front. I bought it. Amazing textural stuff, all electronic. In that studio in Connecticut, uh, they would leave me there in the middle of the night a lot. I would experiment. Uh, I kind of learned how to, I learned about engineering and how to record stuff there. I wasn't trained properly, but I learned a lot. I trained properly. I mean, talking to you know, people going and intern on the Phil Ramone or like, that kind of thing. I didn't get that, but, uh, but I learned a lot. Uh, the head engineer there was very good. And, Grumpy. He didn't really want to teach me, but I learned a lot anyway. Uh, one night I experimented to try to get electronic sounds, and I, 
uh, the console, I would take them uh, one module and I would patch the output back into its own input. And I realized by, uh, it would feedback, obviously. And I realized I could change the feedback, sometimes the pitch by messing with the equalizer. But moving the fader up and down, like the pitch would change sometimes. And I would get, you know, five or six of them happening. And I could, you know, do playing the faders and just ran it through a shitload of reverb. Uh, I, Delay echoed meant you had to set up one of the tape recorders by you know playback and take it back off the playback off the playback head. Uh, I did that and, and uh, especially back then uh, because there was no there were no gadgets. You had to build what you what you wanted to use. Uh, reverb, uh, reverb and and tape and delay were very much a part of the sound. You, you create an oscillation somehow, but you needed that extra dimension to, to give it space. Uh, uh, you're chorusing, you try to take two of those faders and turn them, tune them slightly apart, it could like, take you all day. Uh, but you know, there were no gadgets to, to help us out. Reverb, great, it made everything work. You know, just get it swimming and you get a texture. So that's where I got the bug, I think. Uh, and then the early 70s, uh, there was a mini Moog, and, uh, and I realized that you could, uh, wow, you could, there it is in a little thing. I can carry it. I can take it home. Uh, it's just a little, this little box. It was expensive at the time. Uh, I believe they were selling for over 2000 uh, when, yeah. when they first came out, which was, I mean, you're talking uh, 50 years ago. It was a lot of money. Uh, but I did it. No, just a, a last bit from that experience at that studio. Uh, the head engineer, uh, he was he had really good ears and a good concept about learning stuff. Uh, he got into the studio business because he invented a microphone. Uh, it was actually a condenser mic. Uh, I can't remember, this is going way back, but he put it together a smaller version of it, trying to emulate the Neumann. He didn't quite make that, but it was a good microphone. Put a battery in it. That's it, that simple. So it was just a mic cord, plug it in, and it was, it was set up so there was no cord plugged in. The battery was, was disconnected, obviously. Uh, and that, that studio had those microphones all over the place. And he sold the patent uh, maybe to Vega or some microphone company, and then that was it. But he stayed on as chief engineer. Uh, he kind of, he was kind of into the music, but not completely. He was more into the, the process of recording the music. Uh, but I remember something we were working on late at night, and it, he was telling me about his vision for the future. Uh, uh, mind you, this is... 50 years, a little over 50 years ago, he said, he said, first of all, it's all going to be computerized. And computers at the time, were nobody nobody had a computer. They were way too expensive and way too big. Uh, he said, you're going to be looking at a console. It's, uh, it's going to have four buttons on it. Uh, start and stop. 
and I like it, I don't like it. And you would push start, the computer would make a noise. And you would say, I like that. It would expand on that noise, add something else. So, I don't like that. It would change direction, which meant anybody <clears throat> could sit there just pushing a couple of buttons uh, and create a piece of music that they liked. I said, yeah, well, you, I mean, you could screw up and get something you don't like, but the point was there. Yeah, everybody's making music strictly for themselves. They don't need anybody else. They just need to buy this gadget, which at the time would have been huge. Uh, not uh, somebody. Somebody's probably written software like that, which, which, which means I could probably buy it for twenty nine ninety five, and do and do what he described. But, but he had that vision like fifty years ago, and this was just you know a guy, you know, in a in a small recording studio in Wallingford, Connecticut. And if a band was in there, they'd have to stop recording when a train went by outside. And I, he had this idea. And he never patented it. So, well, it's but it's 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 a rea it's a reality nowadays. I mean, the, the technology exists, yeah. and it's and it's, it's, a, like a, it's a neural it's what we it's a neural net a neural network. Yeah. You just need somebody like you need a human being or some data to decide what is what I like and what I don't yeah. like. Yeah, and if, yeah. so uh, in a likelihood over the next ten years, so it's it's probably going to evolve to that. I mean, right now. What I have around me on my desk is two computers, some, some mixers, your remote control, $8,000 synthesizer replaces everything I've had. Uh, another thing that, that makes a good road sound and a decent piano sound. Samples in the computer, it was unheard of, you know, not that long ago. Uh, it's going to get smaller. It's going to get cheaper. Uh, And more and more people are able to do this uh, and to do their own thing. I mean, that's been happening for, for a long time. It's, a, it's almost an echo of the 50s pop where like, you know, a bunch of people could, a band could go into somebody's basement and turn on a tape recorder and make a hit record. Uh, the only difference is that uh, nobody's going to want to hear the record except them. But they'll be happy because they got what they wanted. But, uh, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what it's going to be like for 10 years. Uh, I probably won't be here, but you'll you'll be. Correct me a note. Wow. <laughs> well, Pete, Pete, that's uh, yeah. And maybe, maybe this is a good good point where we stop for now because I know we could be talking for another two hours easily. <laughs> well. Wow. Like, as you know, you've, you've really put it well, like in a way we've come full circle now after seven, like 70 years of, uh, what goes around, comes around technology. I guess, all the cliches, but, but it's, it's true. Uh, uh, people change, but the things don't change all that much. They just, it, a, a new invention will, will help it. Stay the same. People kind of want the same stuff. They, uh, most people are listening to the bulk of music that goes out there. It's like you know, musicians listen critically and go. Uh, most of it is like that was disco in the seventies. Uh, 
something else in the 80s, something else in the 90s. I did a, a series of albums, all electronic, in the 90s for a friend of mine who uh, he now owns a drum cat company. But it, he had a, uh, did you know them by chance? Drum, drum cat. Uh, they, they make percussion con electronic controllers. Ah, uh, uh, okay. Very, I, I do, yeah. Very good. High. I do. And uh, Aria Vicutis, who owns the company, is a, uh, uh, an extremely good percussionist, uh, mallets, and, and uh, I don't know if he plays drum kit, but he's a per percussionist, but very good. So he's developed all this stuff. But he had another company at the time creating music. Uh, he'd done some of it himself, but he realized uh, he was limited with his, with his, his instruments because he doesn't play pianistic at all. Uh, it was niche marketing, selling relaxation music to massage therapists. Where did this come from? It, it made a good business out of it. Uh, eventually, he stopped, he stopped doing it. He just, he just had maybe got bored or, or other. He was developing the drum cat company and making new instruments. That was really taking his time. But he... Uh, he stopped doing them himself, and he said, "You know, Pete, can you do, can you do an album like this? Uh, it's got to relax people. Uh, the first criteria: uh, I can't get grooving too hard. Uh, you know, ideally, if I'm going to have a tempo at all, it should be heartbeat tempo. Uh, no, no percussion, no, no, no drums, no rhythm sections, like all electronic." Uh, and each CD, four pieces, each one exactly 15 minutes long, which from feedback he'd gotten, his clients, uh, they liked that because they could time their sessions to the music. In other words, when the CD stops, you throw the guy out, uh, or whatever they do. Uh, and, yeah, I did, I did three of them, I think. And uh, they're okay. They're interesting. Uh but to, yeah, if you ask me for a fourth one, I go, geez, Mario, this, I mean, it, I can't groove at all, really, because this, you know, it's getting kind of tedious. I mean, I can almost be watching television. It was my, my formula where I would start at something, modal, keep it modal, put it in flat keys, heavy flat keys, which are mellower. Uh, uh, if you're into chakras, uh, the mellow chakras have more mellow colors, blue, purple, uh, which you can relate to heavy flat key, D flat, well, that's this rich purple. D natural, E, E was white, D is yellow. No, so I would, G flat, everything in G flat, D flat. So I would go for maybe five or six minutes, you know, just march slowly, textural in G flat. Uh, Maybe around seven minutes, I'd move to a four chord. That's it. Hang there for a while. <laughs> they come back, do a reprise at the end. That's it. I could almost be watching television while I do that because a lot of it was like, mm. yeah. oh, I see, our time. And I got to a point I was just sick of my own playing. Uh, I, I would call up the most convenient sounds, a little melody different. Uh, so I did one and I had done it a synth melody through it. I just what it wiped the melody. I called a friend of mine, a jazz flutist, Ali Ryerson, which was it was terrific. I said, old friend of mine. 
I said, Ellie, would you come in and play alto flute? It's real action music. Bring your alto flute. And she came to my apartment, and we took each piece of four of them, 15-minute pieces. I said, okay, this one is it's kind of an E-flat minor. going to start there. Eventually, it's going to go to A-flat major. And I'll wave at you when it's coming. Just play some stuff. Just play some moody stuff. Uh, played a little bit. She got a sound sheet. That's it. Go for it. That's it. 15 minutes later. Ah, this is good. I got to go downstairs and feed the meter. I'll be right back. Came back upstairs, did another one. And did two more. We, we did the album that way. Uh, I just re-released it uh, because Ellie sells them at gigs. Uh, I don't so much. And let's do it. It's okay. Ellie made it interesting for me. Anyway, uh, she played some beautiful stuff. Uh, I retitled it called Meditations. I photoshopped the picture of my backyard here, which is a big open field. And I photoshopped my dog just lying there looking at some birds flying by. I also photoshopped the birds in. <laughs> That's it. Meditations. <laughs> uh, is that is that on on Bandcamp or where did you put that out? Uh, Alex, or the CD. Alex sells them gigs. Uh, I was, oh, I was selling them online for a while. She travels a lot and does a lot of clinics and a lot of students. So she keeps on loading. We keep doing a new pressing, mostly for her. I'll, I'll take some. I'll give them away. Uh, it's fun. I, I'll, I'll send you a copy. Well, I'll give you a copy. You're gonna you're gonna be. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll see you in two days anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you so much, Pete. Yep. Thank you so much again. Oh, yeah. this, this is a lot of fun. It's great talking to you, man. And, uh, to you, we, talk, uh, we just spent two hours talking about me. We should talk more. Talk about you some, some more. Yeah. We'll we'll do that next time. <laughs>